This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello folks, good evening. Um, I'm Bill O'Neill, the Dean of the Soria Business School here at Suffolk University, and I'd like to welcome you to this uh, program of doing business in China. This is our fourth one, I believe. Terry will tell me yes, no. Um, and this, this is a, since in support of what we do as a business school focusing on global business. So doing business in China, doing business in Brazil, doing business in um, Russia, or doing business in India. The BRIC countries are very, very important to us in our curriculum and having the students learn about this. I started uh, doing business in China, I think one of my associates is here, in 1988. And compared to where it is today back then, you would think it's 100 years ago. The country has changed so much. And whenever I would go back, it seemed like every six months the changes were enormous and it still is happening. So we're running these panels and having people speak about their experiences in China and keeping current as to what's going, you have to going on in China. You have to realize that what they say will last about six months because it, it just rapidly changes, whether it's the sustainability, whether it's the economy, whether it's a, uh, getting into the WTO as they did, it just is amazing what's happening. But it's important to keep current on this because this is, uh, this is our world, this is our future, and they, uh, they will be part of our life forever as we go forward here, at least as long as we know it. So enjoy the evening, enjoy the panel, and thank you for coming out. So, Good evening. Thank you, Bill. Uh, my name is Gopinath. It's Gopi for short. I'm in the Strategy and International Business Department, and I'll be the timekeeper, record keeper, moderator, and all of the above for this evening. So I'm happy to see so many students here, alums here, faculty here, and all of you to join us in this Doing Business in China event. We've done this for a long time now, and uh, we usually have this kind of an event to commemorate the Chinese New Year. And as you know, that took place last month. But we always have an event like this around the time of the Chinese New Year. And when we first started this a few years ago, I think it was 2001, also we, uh, the focus was on the cultural issues, cultural differences, a lot of cultural events and so on. And over a period of time, it's been morphing into more serious issues. In the last few years, we've taken up a theme each time and we've focused on the theme. And this time the theme is branding and intellectual property and issues like that. And we have an excellent panel here to deal with it. And so my job is to try to stay out of their way as much as possible. But, you know, counterfeiting and uh, branding are issues that are in the papers all the time. And uh, not just with regard to China, but around the world. And in China particularly because of the enormous amount of manufacturing that goes on there. And, uh, you know, a philosopher might say that uh, emulation is a very good form of flattery. But if you're in business, then you don't want that kind of flattery because you've invested money in building your brand and you're worried about what flattery does to your quality image and issues like that. So the question is, how do you deal with a brand? Why do consumers go for counterfeit products? What do they look for in a product? How do you protect your brand? What is the intellectual property side of this and so on? 
So we have three people today, and uh, the format we are going to follow is I'm going to let them speak one by one. Each panelist has 20 minutes. And around uh, 15 to 17 minutes, the panelist will see me fidgeting in the front row. And then you'll know that you only have about three minutes left. And then by the time it's 20 minutes, you'll find me standing up, and then you'll know your time is up. And uh, I would request you, the audience, to hold your questions till the end. We'll first hear the panelists one by one. And when they are done, we have enough time for some good uh, Q&A. Uh, we start with uh, Mr. John McDonald. He's an alum, and his uh, resume is there in the flyer with you. I don't want to repeat it, but I want to point out that uh, not just Mr. John McDonald, but his family is closely connected with Suffolk and has made significant contributions to us. His uncle Ed McDonald gave a significant amount to kickstart a lot of our international activities and the focus on China. Mr. John McDonald has been a regular visitor to our campus, giving talks in our classes and being closely involved in all our efforts. So it's with great pleasure I request John to come up. The pressure's on, I'm not good with time. So I'll cut right to the chase. I, I'm not the guy that gave the money, so don't get any false impressions. <laughs> It, it was a gentleman a little older than me and has more money. Uh, I went to this university. My wife went there, and we were so proud of this university. Our son has, is attending currently. Uh, Suffolk's meant a lot to me. It taught me about work-life balance, and I, I'm gr grateful to be back here to share my experiences of living in greater China. Uh, today we're going to talk about you know, trademarks, trade dress, counterfeits, and look-alike. So I won't spend time, because I'm sure you all know what those mean. But as with any foreign culture, the first thing I would tell you is if you go in to do business, is obviously learn about the culture. Now, you think that that's a simple statement, and it's obvious. I can't tell you, and we don't have the time to share with you how many people go in with their eyes wide open, but they didn't bother to do their homework. So. Uh, I was sent to China in 1992 was my first stint, and I was sent there to teach the Chinese people how to sell, and again, I had no foreign language background, so it was quite a, I think I learned more than I taught the people over there. But I must have done okay, because they sent me back in 96 to run the country of Taiwan, and I, I called my wife, I said, hey, look, we're moving over to Taiwan. This was one week after China decided to shoot missiles over the island to remind them of who was the big brother. The, uh, and again, I didn't speak one word of Chinese. You can see, next slide, you know, it's um, quite an interesting filled city. It's the second most densely populated city in the world, Taipei, behind Bangladesh. Not only do you have to learn the culture and about Buddha, but you know, there's things, I grew up a Catholic, so when I found myself praying bye-bye you know, with fruits and money to the Buddha to bring me good fortune, I, it was a little uh, things that I never thought I would be experiencing. But let's get to the gist of the conversation. My first counterfeit story. At uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. Now, it's the police department. Now, anytime the police department calls, you know, I get nervous because I grew up in the city, so I figured I got caught for something that you know, probably justly so. But this particular instance was, I worked for a company called Seagram Liquor Company, and we marketed and sold Chivas 12-year-old scotch, which happened to be, probably in the 80s, 
the number one selling 12-year-old Scotch whiskey in America, and it did extremely well overseas. So much to my amazement, the people, the police had arrested a bunch of people in a garage, and they were emptying, took the empty bottles and filled them with water and just added coloring and resealed them, and they were selling them on the open market. So that is a classic case of counterfeiting. Now, some of you, I'm sure, can read these Chinese symbols, but you have to understand, if you don't, you know, our language has 26 letters. The Chinese characters are over 6,000. You need to know 3,000 characters just to read the Chinese newspaper. So can you imagine us trying to read Chinese if you didn't speak the language? It, so we put up some good words for the year of the tiger, good luck, longevity, prosperity, and virtue. But picture this, if you will. Okay, the left, Chivas Regal, 12 year old, that's the real deal. And here is <coughs> the look-alike, we call this. Okay, not counterfeit. The juice in this bottle is whiskey, the cheapest whiskey you could make. But they copied that, and they put the 12 on there to signify it's 12, or imply 12 years of age which it's about 12 days of age. <laughs> okay, this is Elk River. And you can see the typeface and the look, the trade dress, everything is quite similar to Chivas Regal. If you go to the next slide, you can see a couple more old premium, again, the inference of the age on the label. The next one, and this one hurt in particular, because the brand on the left I introduced when I was in Taiwan. We had a, there was a space in the market between 12-year-old Scotch whiskey and 21-year-old Scotch whiskey. So we came out with this, and it was Chivas Regal Revolve. And the bottle on the left had a dimple on the bottom, and you could be like, spin the bottle. For those of you that are familiar with Chinese culture, there's a lot of salon business, and you can have a lot of fun with that bottle. And I'll leave it at that. Within six months, the brand on the right came out with a W and, ironically, had a dimple on the bottom within six months. I was there probably a year, and we set out our sales team. In one year, there were 123 brands that looked like Chivas Regal. So can you imagine what happened to our sales? 123. So what did I do? I lined up all my sales force, the non-English speaking sales force, and I put Chivas Regal in the middle of these lookalikes. I said, please pick out Chivas Regal. Not one of the 100 salespeople could pick the right bottle. Okay? Now, what does it come down to? Clothes versus shirts. If we were trying to market the Dean O'Neill collection of clothing, it's much different than the United States. The United States, you can be specific about what you want to trademark. In China, it's extremely broad. So somebody that registered shirts could also be selling socks, suits, whatever, because of the, the broadness of the definition. So now I come back to whiskey. This is Royal Salute 
21-year-old scotch, or this brand would make you think it's Royal Salute 21-year-old scotch. I have on easels over there some pictures of the real and the fake, but this Royal Salute scotch, for those of you that are not scotch drinkers, goes for 120 US dollars a bottle. That's ceramic made painted. It came in three different colors. These, this is a fake. And it's, what they did was, they put 35, it's a 21 year old scotch, so they put 35 to, obviously, the older they think the better. So people were gobbling this stuff up, and it was um, very bad whiskey. So our business on this suffered tremendously. The next one is uh, Royal Caris to infer charisma. All this stuff come from the, came from the Philippines, and it's hand-painted glass. And they copied our gift sets as well. So for the Chinese New Year, come out with a nice red gift set with glasses and things, and these people would duplicate the same thing. Here's another one, Royal Award. Next one is Royal Salam. And it, it didn't take long for these people to produce anything that was successful in the market. For those of you that have um, I spent most of my time talking about Taiwan today, because I lived four years there, but they, that market is the most fickle market of any market I've worked in around the world. A brand can change within six months and take over a leadership position because it gets knocked off, and it, it's a real tragedy. So the next hour, I'd like to fast forward to my current role, which is at Patron Spirits Company, and what I learned from my previous experiences is the first thing that we did was register properly. We're, we are now in, the next slide is, we're in 115 countries from two countries five years ago. And the first thing you need to know is you better get your trademark in order if you're going to go to all these markets. We've gone from 200,000 cases to 1.75 million cases globally. And the next one shows you the challenge of registering a trademark in China. You don't need to read the chart, but you can see all the steps involved. So what does this tell you? The key point from this chart is you better start early if you intend on doing business in China. Now, this pretty much sums it up. If you remember nothing else from what I'm talking about, and I'm on fast forward because I, I didn't know the dear professor was going to hold me to 17 minutes. The, I told you about words, letters, characters earlier. I want to go into China. So I'm, we applied for registration of the trademark Patron, P-A-T-R-O-N. And Patron is classified as a spirit. So we were rejected on the basis of this brand, Pat, P-A-T-T-O-N. And that's not even the, the, the major name. That's a secondary name. The main name is Garrett Hill. And why do you think we were rejected? Because Patton is too close to the word Patron. Now, all of us know that there's a serious difference between Patton and Patron, but not to the Chinese government. So we were rejected. Now, who do you think owned this? Some rice farmer in the middle of nowhere I'm negotiating with, trying to get this name back. So, you know, eventually 
you know, we were able to sort that problem out. But just imagine one letter to them means the whole <coughs> difference. So again, this comes back to the, ex the example I earlier, shirts versus clothing. In America, you could trademark wine versus spirit, but in China, it encompassed all alcoholic beverages. You can go to the next one. This one, this isn't on China, but this is a, un a it's a great story to illustrate the point, but it's unfortunate. <coughs> when Patron came out and was successful, an entrepreneur in in Sweden decided that he was going to register the Patron Vodka name. So this gentleman registered Patron Vodka, and when I went to sell Patron Tequila in, in not just Sweden, the, all Scandinavian countries, we weren't allowed to do that because he owned the name. So again, if we did things properly and we thought about going into the EU, we should have taken those steps. So this cost us $2.2 million to get out of, to get our trademark back. And again, vodka is very different than tequila. These are agave fields. Vodka is a grain neutral spirit that you can make from wheat, rye, corn, potatoes. <coughs> now, so again, it, with being conscious of time, the, what's the lessons you learn? Every country's different. I mean, you can't, you can't take anything for granted. So, you know, if you're gonna go to the EU, file for all the EU now, even if you're not gonna do it for five years. Because first means everything. Never assume, you know, if, if you start to smell your brands being successful, go pick out the priority markets around the globe and put some money against it. It doesn't cost an arm and a leg to register your trademark. And again, if we had, registered the trade dress on Chivas Regal, I mean, that would have avoided so many problems. Not just the name, but the package and, and the design. Uh, URLs, you, that is a money-making racket. Anything that anybody sees an opportunity to do, they register. So our website, patrontequila.com, well, we didn't register patrontequila.com.tw, so now we have to go and negotiate with those people to buy the URLs. I mean, this goes on in every country around the world. People will buy, they see Patron's being successful. They just bought PatronTV.com. So, I mean, if I had a, a dollar for every thousand dollars we've spent on uh, negotiation settlements, I'd be able to make a donation like the other McDonald's did to the university. <laughs> and again, quality legal counsel, who happens to be in this room at the table, so I, I'm sure he can uh, give his card out later. And creative options. So let's talk about that. I was asked to come up, well, how do we combat this? Go to the next one. This is a guala seal. So I'm going to take one and pass one on. You can go to the next slide. This goes into the neck of the bottle to avoid people being able to knock off or counterfeit your brand. So for those of you that are kind enough to spend your disposable income dollars on Patron Tequila, I appreciate that. And the <laughs> high quality package comes in three flavors. This you is- a sample? 
<laughs> this, the Patron's a pork finish. So what we've done is, we've still used the pork, and then we've put the guava seal inside. So you can't put a needle or anything in there to prevent the counterfeiting of the product, but yet maintaining the integrity of the package. So that's the solution for how we're getting around this. All third world countries in greater China were using this package now. And you, you can go ahead with the slides next. And I've done this 20-minute presentation in 15 minutes. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, John, for your excellent time since. But uh, John brought up two important issues in his presentation, which was from a business perspective. Somebody from the ground was telling us about the counterfeit products, showed us samples of that, and also told us that people are buying them. There is a good market for it, which is why you have such counterfeit products. And the other issue he brought up was that of trademarks. And both those themes will be picked up by our next two panelists. And so I have great pleasure in introducing Gianna Eckhart to you. She's my colleague from the marketing department, an expert in consumer behavior, and has done a lot of research about this, particularly with a focus on China. And she's going to tell us about why consumers are buying counterfeit products. Gianna. Thank you, Gopi. Um, I am a China scholar. I have been studying consumer behavior and branding in China since 1997. And I can tell you that counterfeit goods are ubiquitous. They are a part of everyday life. The official statistics will tell you uh, counterfeit goods are 20% of all consumer products available on the marketplace. So this is something that consumers uh, navigate every day as they, as they go uh, through their, um, their daily consumption. What I would like to do today is talk to you a little bit about counterfeit brands from the perspective of the consumer, which I hope complements uh, what we just heard from John, the perspective of the company, and what we'll hear a little bit later from David, the legal perspective about trademarks. So to start us off on our conversation, I want to show you a recent um, uh, news story uh, uh, about the launch of the iPhone in China, which happened last year in 2009. <coughs> Shishka.
手机，还有二米蛙手机、手表造型的手机，还有光学变焦手机。这一支更厉害，具有夜超功能的手机。想来个香烟造型的手机，这里也有卖。同时仿冒用的是产业进化手机，大陆地下经济规模大的吓人，已经让站牌的手机大厂快要活不下去。主编新闻，前中网友情综合报道。<laughs> so, as you heard, the iPhone was released, was released, the fake iPhone was released before the real iPhone. It had more features than the real iPhone, and it was cheaper than the real iPhone. <laughs> So, in answer to the question, you know, why are consumers,、um, you know, why do they want、uh, counterfeits so much? I thought that was a really、uh, excellent illustration of what's available in the marketplace and、um, and kind of the the daily sorts of comparisons that consumers go through with regards to the real thing and the counterfeit. So.、Um, Counterfeits are ubiquitous and they're also sophisticated. There's a couple、um, examples I have for you here. I don't know how well you can read this, but this says Georgie instead of Giorgio, so they left off the O here. Giorgio Amani, so it's A M O N I. This is、uh, Buckstar instead of Starbucks. <laughs> These are just some examples of the types of counterfeit brands that are seen on a daily basis、um, that compete with the real brands. Um, some other、uh, product categories we have.、Uh, you can see that that's Heike with an H instead of an N. And down here, this says Pizza Hut H U H instead of T. But it's very difficult to see the difference because the font is exactly the same there.、Um, a, a good point to make here with this slide is that some there there's a wide variation in the type of counterfeit brands that are available. Some are made just different enough to make prosecution extremely difficult. So, for example, with Heike, there's obviously an H instead of an N, and there's a little second、uh, flare in in the、um, uh, in the design there. So that would hold up the court system for forever trying to prosecute that. We'll probably hear a little bit more about that from the next speaker. But so you have some that are deliberately just different enough, but you have others that are virtually undetectable, and I'll show you some pictures of those、um, in a minute as well. So there's a huge spectrum and variation of the types. Of counterfeits that you see,、um, yeah. Just to give you a sense of this,、um, the so this is a bottle of Coca-Cola. You can see that the original actually doesn't have any English on it. The,、uh, the 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 parts of the brand that are standardized globally are the colors, the red and white, but all the text is localized. But you can see the copycat actually has English. So from a consumer's perspective, you would almost be more likely to think that the copycat was the real one, right? Because it has those sort of global signals by using English. Um, you can see this is a juice drink, similar to the Chivas Regal example that we just saw, and even in product categories like irons, a lot of people think about counterfeit brands as being luxury, like fake Louis Vuitton handbags. But it is so ubiquitous, you can find it in every product category. So this is just a simple example of a national、um, uh, uh, iron, and it's, I know it's a little bit hard for you to see, but the packaging is almost identical. As are the features. I mean, unless you were an expert in irons, it would be very difficult to tell the difference between the two. So I hope you can get a sense of, like I said, the the types of product categories, the sophistication, and the ubiquity of、um, of these counterfeits. So. 
to just give you a little bit of, of background about how consumers navigate this complex marketplace, in many product categories, it is difficult to find the real thing. I conducted my own experiment. This was a few years ago uh, in Shanghai. I tried to buy a movie, a DVD, that was not fake. And I spent all day doing it, and I was unsuccessful by the end of the day. <laughs> in some product categories, and of course, DVDs would be one that's you know, a very extreme, it is almost impossible to actually track down the real thing. So sometimes you buy counterfeits because it's what's available. Um, the second point, you have to be very savvy to navigate the marketplace. With that sort of hikey that we saw, it's more obvious that it's a fake. But there are so many fakes where the differences are so minute that you really have to be an expert. And I'm going to tell you about a study that I conducted in a minute. And one of the main stimuli we used in that study was Louis Vuitton handbags. And the differences between the fakes and the real ones were down to this type of stitching and the color of the thread used in the stitching on this year's model compared to last year's. So you really have to be uh, extremely savvy to be able to kind of navigate if you even want to try and get a real one or figure out which ones are fake, which ones are real. So what that results in, which to me is quite interesting, is a very high level of consumer sophistication, not just with regards to counterfeits, but with regards to all types of consumption, because you have to be much more schooled and evaluative than you do oftentimes in other marketplaces. Um, and the final point, and this came through really strongly in the data I collected in the study that I'll tell you about in a minute, is that so many consumers talked about the fact that they wanted these brands, and in particular global brands. There are a lot of counterfeits for local brands as well, but in particular global brands, the Chivas Regals, the Patrones, the brands that everyone wants, they see all the advertising, they read all the articles um, on the internet, but they don't have the disposable income to buy it. So they talk a lot about how you know demand is really being stimulated in China, but my income is not rising as fast as you know my desires are. So how can I access and you know become a part of this global consumer culture that I want to be a part of? And the answer is by using a counterfeit. So these are kind of some of the motivations here. Um, so what I want to tell you about really quickly is um, I uh, was involved in a study that was investigating consumers' attitudes towards counterfeits. It was actually an eight-country study, but what I'm going to share with you today is some of the findings from China only. Um, but we were especially focused on um, uh, ethics. So in other words, do consumers in China find buying, you know, violating intellectual property rights by buying counterfeits to be unethical? And the short answer to that question, the short answer to that question is no, by the way, if you haven't figured that out already. But we'll go a little bit into some of the intricacies of that. Um, so basically, the uh, consumers were interviewed in Beijing and Shanghai. So these are kind of a major, in addition to Guangzhou and Hong Kong, um, the, the, the major uh, consumer centers uh, in, in China. Um, like I said, we focused on the kind of ethicality. Um, and uh, yeah, as I already said, um, not only did most people not find buying uh, counterfeits unethical, but in fact, they were not even familiar with the concept of intellectual property. They weren't even when they were confused as to why they were being asked the question as to whether it was you know, right or not to buy counterfeit products. So the, the concept that this was somehow something that you shouldn't be doing is not only um, not really valid from a legal perspective in the sense that you don't see a lot of enforcement of a lot of the, the laws there, but also just from a personal moral code perspective. It was not really perceived as a violation. Um, 
And so we asked about both big ticket and small ticket items. So an example of one of the big ticket items we asked about were uh, Louis Vuitton handbags. So these, in many cases, are even more expensive, the real ones, in the Chinese marketplace than they are in the French marketplace, which is their home market, or the US, for example. So we're talking between $3,000 and $6,000 US, the equivalent in RMB, um, for a handbag like this. Um, and so this was a big ticket item, and then we had some smaller, you know, DVDs, et cetera, were the smaller ticket items we talked about. So I just want to share with you some of the responses we got, which I think will illuminate this issue a little bit. Um, so I talked about this already. Basically, a lot of the consumer responses underlined the point that this was a normal part of everyday life. This was something they did almost on a daily basis. This was not necessarily a big deal to them, and it was part of their everyday existence. Um, so you can see here, it's acceptable in China, but not abroad. So there is an awareness that, starting to be an awareness that this is an issue to other people, but not necessarily to us. Uh, we don't know about copywriting of music products, so this person was talking about buying um, CDs. Uh, we thought it was normal to buy fake ones. We get the same result by playing less money, by paying less money. Um, it's unacceptable to pay 20 yuan for a real one. We'd rather pay one to two for a fake. We earn RMB and American people earn dollars. So there was very much this sort of egalitarian sense of, you know, we don't earn as much as everyone else, so she, we shouldn't be expected to pay those prices. You know, we deserve to only pay a dollar or two for the counterfeit ones because there's such an income discrepancy. So that sort of egalitarianism was very much a, a, a thread. Through, through what consumers were saying. Um, and here we have someone who says, in fact, it's not good. So in other words, this person is saying, this is not necessarily a practice that should be happening. But real ones are too expensive and worth several fake ones. If it's only one or two UN dearer, the real one may lose market share. Many people prefer to buy cheaper. I know it's not ethical. People would buy real discs if they're cheap. So this is the idea that kind of uh, your, your consumer ethics and morals stop at the pocketbook. Um, that you know, there's an awareness that this necessarily isn't ethical, but uh, the, the, the economic rationalization seems to outpace that. Um, and by the way, I know that I'm going through this really quickly. I have a book coming out this summer called The Myth of the Ethical Consumer, which is going to go into a lot of this uh, ethics ending at the pocketbook much more in depth, so I can tell you a little bit more about that after the, uh, after the talk. Um, so finally here, in China, most of the consumers are from the ordinary working class. They don't earn much, they have to spend money on life, so they'll certainly mind the price as the first important thing. It's natural. The media says we should be against pirated editions, um, but most of them will buy the fake. Why do they support the fake? Just think of the price. So it's kind of reinforcing the, the point that we were just discussing. Um, some other factors that were important, um, a lot of people brought up the high, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar with Chinese consumer behavior in general, one of the things we see there in comparison to other uh, countries, in particular the US, is a really high rate of savings. You don't see um, from people's salaries as large a percentage of salaries going towards disposable income. Very, very high savings rates. Um, also a low use of credit. This is starting to change. Credit is starting to become more available. People are starting to become more comfortable with the concept, but as of yet, overall, you see a very low use of credit. So if you have a $6,000 Louis Vuitton handbag and you're an American and you know not necessarily of the leisure class, I'll say, 
what do you do? You probably put it on a credit card and pay it back every month until it's finally paid off. Well, that's not really how um, most people operate with their finances. So there's this idea that if I have excess money, I need to be saving it to buy um, uh, something that's going to contribute to the value of my family in general. And a lot of people talked about education. They, 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 there's an appeal of these types of luxury brands like Louis Vuitton, but not necessarily the impetus to save for as long as it would take to be able to get one when you could just get a cheaper one, which maybe no one could even tell the difference, um, for much less. So these are some factors that were also important. Um, and then finally, uh, an important point to make, I think, is the importance of brand signals. So when consumers were talking about uh, you know, buying real compared to fake and how they told the difference, um, they talked a lot about uh, signaling. So for example, um, national TV ads. Well, so say take a Chivas Regal or a Patron. Well, I saw an ad on TV and I looked at what the, uh, the label was supposed to look like really closely and I used that when I was in the store trying to define whether I got the real one or the fake one. So there were a lot of signals that they touched upon. Well, and if, it, if a brand didn't have a national TV ad, that meant it was probably counterfeit because they couldn't afford to advertise in a really high value um, medium such as national television ads. So the importance of signaling is even more important in this marketplace. Um, so the thing that I always get asked is, uh, when I'm working with companies, et cetera, is do counterfeits hurt demand for the real thing? So if there's 123 different versions of Patron floating around out there, how is that going to hurt the brand value um, of Patron? And the answer, which I always give, which is counterintuitive to a lot of people and kind of what I hope is the added value of this research that I've just been describing, is for the most part, no. Um, you don't necessarily see lower demand numbers for brands that have uh, a wide variety of fakes available in the marketplace. So why is that? Um, well, from our research, and I would argue that this is a generalizable finding, uh, respondents aspire to own the real thing when they can afford to do so. so. All those quotes I just showed you about, yes, of course I buy the fake, I can't afford to buy the real. The flip side of that is people were saying, as soon as I can afford to buy the real one, I will. There is an aspiration to, to have that and to have all the trappings that demonstrate it's real when someone comes over. So you'll see people carrying handbags that still have the price tag on it. You know, different trappings that show, that demonstrate this is real. Or so, you know, maybe the seal that's not broken on the Patron bottle or, th you know, things that, or the, the, the special seal that John just passed around and you all saw, saving that and keeping it on your sideboard in your house. That would be an example of a way that you can signal to other people. Um, so, yes, you, you see that demand. Um, and whether a person has the real thing or not is closely related to other contextual factors. And I'll just explain quickly what I mean by that. You oftentimes see a hierarchy with regards to the fake brands and the real brands. So for example, at, um, uh, at a company, the, the person who is the secretary will have a fake Louis Vuitton handbag that's fairly obviously fake, maybe not to us, but to people who are very expert in this with regards to whether it's last season's design, what the thread is like, et cetera. Then the person, the next level up in management, will have one that is fake, but not obviously fake. It would, it, you have to go digging around on the inside of it to reveal the particular um, elements of it that, that would demonstrate that. And then the person who is the CEO would have the real one. And there's this correspondence between where your level in the hierarchy is and what type of fake or what type of real one that you have that people want to 
be a part of that hierarchy and they don't necessarily want to break it. So although they're buying a fake one now, once they get to be CEO, they will buy a real one. And of course, as the middle class and upper middle class in China continues to grow, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, uh, with those statistics, you're going to see an increasing demand um, for the real thing. Um, so what are some takeaway messages for you? I'm still, um, I'm good with time? Good, we get to, um, to finish this up. The demand for counterfeits is strong. There is, in my opinion, the, the demand for counterfeits is not going to go down. Um, the, I'm sure we're gonna hear about this in a minute from David, but when China joined the WTO, they were forced to put, uh, uh, to pass legislation that said they will be enforcing counterfeits. Um, that has not, the enforcement part, the, the, the laws on the books has come about, the enforcement part, not necessarily, and we can hear the, the reasons for that in a minute, but um, I don't really see from either a legal perspective or simply a consumer demand perspective that this is gonna be going away anytime soon. Um, the, Part, some of the reasons for that, as I mentioned before, there is a really high demand, especially for the types of premium brands we were just hearing about, and so far, limited means to, to meet those demands, combined with things like the high savings rate and low credit, which I talked about already, um, and co also combined with um, the fact that most people don't, they know that they're not gonna get prosecuted for it from a legal perspective from, for, for buying a fake, and they don't see anything wrong with it or unethical from their own personal viewpoint. So they don't really have a motivation to change in that sense. Um, but this is not necessarily a bad thing. And like I said, I, I feel like this is, the, this is the interesting part or the twist or the added value I hope for you. Um, Oftentimes, having the 123 different copies that are in the marketplace can cement um, your reputation, uh, that you're deserved of, of being copied. Um, and certainly with Louis Vuitton, as I was talking about before, their flagship store is now not in Tokyo, it's now in Shanghai. And they now sell more Louis Vuitton in China than they do in any other marketplaces. And they have ubiquitous, ubiquitous uh, fakes everywhere. So that's just kind of one example of you know, that your reputation can be cemented through this. Um, and also, it can stimulate demand for the real thing. When we talk about branding, the two things, and in particular with regards to counterfeits, the two things that we want to be most cognizant of are cannibalization and brand dilution. So the questions are, are the, the fake brands cannibalizing the real brands? So in other words, if someone would have, who would have bought the real thing now buying the fake one, if the answer to that is yes, there's brand cannibalization and that is a negative thing for you. But what our research has, has kind of discovered, as I alluded to with the ideas of the, the hierarchies I was talking about, there are distinct segments who have demand for the fake compared to the real. And secondly, brand dilution. This one isn't necessarily as clear cut. So the idea here would be, well, if a million people are carrying Louis Vuitton handbags and it's really difficult to tell which ones are fake and which ones are real, doesn't that dilute the value of the brand? Because all of a sudden it becomes a mass product that you see everywhere as opposed to a very elite um, type of thing that only a few people can afford. That part, um, uh, I think, is very dependent upon product category. Um, and so, for example, we were hearing about spirits before and um, a lot of Chinese consumers are not familiar with what particular types of spirits are supposed to taste like. And a lot of this has been in the news recently <coughs> with regards to red wine. 
um, that there's just not a lot of familiarity with what red wine is supposed to taste like. So people drink the counterfeits and they're not even sure that it's a counterfeit because they don't know what the real one is supposed to taste like. And so if it tastes really bad, then all of a sudden you say, well, I just bought this, you know, um, uh, Chateau Confit uh, Cab Sav and it tastes horrible, so now I'm never gonna buy that again. So you can start to see brand dilution in product categories where there's less familiarity. That is occurring, but it's not necessarily occurring in other luxury product categories. So like I said, that issue is a little bit more um, dependent on product category. But I think, yep, I think that's, uh, I'll, I'll just end up there and I look forward to answering uh, some more of your questions and going into a little bit more depth uh, during the Q&A, thanks. Thank you, Gianna, for putting that issue of branding and counterfeiting within the larger perspective of how consumers think about it and the ethical and other issues that are involved in the process. And now let us hear David Wernoff from a law firm who will give us the legal side of this and what it takes to register your trademarks and what it takes to protect it and whether people are successful in it or not. So, David. First off, I want to start by just pointing out a couple of things. Uh, China changes at a dramatic rate. Uh, the trip to China that you took in 2007 was to a different country from China in 2010. Um, it, it, that is especially the case for the Tier 1 and Tier 2 cities along the Eastern Seaboard, and even for the Tier 3 cities that are quickly becoming Tier 2 cities. That is, uh, cities that are once had populations of uh, you know a million or so, and now have five and a half million people. Um, so, understand that China is changing rapidly, and in such, also even and this goes to what Gianna was saying that there is a rapidly developing middle class and upper middle class, and it's growing rapidly, and it shortly will be larger than the middle class in the United States. So before one starts absolutely getting petrified, there will be a good market for American goods and real American goods in China over the next several years. China has trademark laws in place. Um, that, that's always a start. They uh, are a member of the WTO and the WIPO. Um, they also have unfair competition and uh, unfair business practices laws. In fact, there was a brand new act, an unfair business practices act, as I've been mentioned on here, that was adopted in 2009. The trademark law actually had new regulations that came out in 2004. So there is a regulatory framework, and they are party to the Madrid Agreement regarding international registration of marks. So you do have certain legal frameworks in place. That being said, the, the first thing that everybody should know is that China's rule on trademarks is that the first to file, as compared to the first use of a mark, has the first rights in a mark. That's essential. So going back to what John said, when he said 
Do it soon, do it real soon. Because the first to file, outside of certain very narrow exceptions, which are for very famous or world-renowned, and it's usually not brands, it tends to be with individuals, like stars, uh, the courts will almost always give credence to the first to file in mainland China. There are also cases, though, that do indicate where the courts are going. First, I want to let you know, there are a lot of cases, a lot of lawsuits, right now as we speak in China. In fact, there are almost 9,000 intellectual property lawsuits in 2009. In 2007, there were 17,000 intellectual property lawsuits. To give you an idea, in all of Great Britain, including Wales, Scotland, and England, there were 400 cases. So it is, there, there is an active caseload. Part of the problem is, in fact, there are too many cases to be heard at the time. We will get into the actual law and how it works, but understand that there are many, many people filing and pursuing lawsuits in China as we speak. <coughs> Classic case was the Starbucks case against Shanghai Shinbake. Shanghai Shinbake had filed first the term Shinbake, which means essentially Starbucks in Mandarin. Pardon the bad pronunciation. They had done that in 1999. Note that Starbucks had only filed its trademark registration in English. You're going to learn a lesson. When you file your trademark registration, you file in English and in Chinese, at least in pinyin. And preferably, be careful with the pinyin because you want to make sure that the symbols that you use are the right symbols. We'll get into that in a moment. Starbucks had registered Shinbake in Taiwan. Fat lot of good it did. Chinese company had also adopted the logo of a circle with white characters on a green background, not unlike the shirt that somebody was wearing back there much like Starbucks. In December 2005, a court in Shanghai found that Shinbake acted in bad faith and ordered damages of 500,000 RMB. Now that's only $75,000. So you might say to yourself, well, that's a low amount, but it's very significant. That's serious money in Shanghai. It's also a serious case. Everybody looked at it. Fast forward two years later, Yamaha wins a trademark infringement case for $880,000 in 2007. And then I go back actually a little bit and we talk about the first case. It was only in 2003 when Chinese courts ruled for the first time on behalf of a Western company in the Lego case. That was actually a patent infringement case, but where there was a knockoff of Lego and ruled on behalf of Lego. That was the first time and that wasn't until 2003 after appeals. So a lot has changed. Note how quickly things are changing. Sorry, I forgot to fast forward on this. So my, my suggestion is that anyone who wants to develop in PRC develops a plan. And as you can see here, first is register early. It's first to file. So you research who's out there and what's out there, and then you file early. And note that prior uses can sometimes develop into a determination that mark is generic. So that's even more reason for you to go ahead and file. Because if you go ahead and start using a mark long enough, a court can say, well, it's now become generic. You, don't, you no, no longer have something that's able 
are susceptible to trademark registration. Double-edged sword. So there's every reason in the world to go out and register immediately. And what territories? Guess what, guys? You have to do separate registrations for Hong Kong SAR, Macau SAR, and for Taiwan. Certainly you're well aware of that one, John. Then, perhaps most important is you register in English and Chinese. The Starbucks case, part of the rationale that's, and, and this is being bandied about in law schools all over the world, uh, that the court ruled on behalf of Starbucks was because of the size and prestige of the company. And perhaps they did look to the past registration that Starbucks had had of Shinbake in Taiwan. But if you're a small company, you want to have the registration in pinyin as well as in English characters. And understand, be careful of Chinese names. There are essentially three different methods, or two and a half methods, if you will. There's a phonetic method, careful. The conceptual method, a nice idea, but you might end up with a name that sounds nothing like your product. And a mixed method, which is really the way that I always recommend to my clients. Something that sounds somewhat like your, your product, but also has a message when it's translated from the actual symbols in, be it in simplified Chinese in mainland or in traditional Chinese in Hong Kong and Taiwan into something that has a positive meaning. Now, I'll give you an example of phonetics. A classic example comes from Taiwan. For many years, I don't know if there's anybody out there who's from Taiwan, but for many years, Mercedes-Benz was not a very well-sold car in Taiwan. That's not to say that other luxury cars did not sell well in Taiwan. It's just that they have to use a really bad name. They use the character Benzi, which in traditional Chinese translated as stupid to the point of dying. <laughs> so as a result, nobody wanted to buy a car that meant that you're stupid to the point where you deserve to die. They have now, in mainland Chinese, adopted Benzi, which has a completely different meaning and means strong and powerful. See how they've learned, but note how they lost massive amounts of market sale share in Taiwan. Careful of the phonetics. A good example of phonetics is what BMW is using in China, which in pinyin is Baoma, sounds a little bit like BMW, and means precious horse. Let's go to contextual ideas. I like looking at this in the idea of makeup. And Revlon has been very clever. They use Lu Qua Non, which doesn't really sound a lot to the American ear like Revlon, does it? To the Chinese ear, it sounds a little bit like Revlon, by the way. But it means dense dew, which is from a famous poem from the Tang Dynasty. The poem is, she is so beautiful that clouds would want clothes and flowers would want makeup. Dense dew glitters on her hair, caressed by spring breezes. That is the name of, of Revlon in China. Lu Kua No. Now you see how it has, really to the American ear, no sound like Revlon. <coughs> Other ones are Porsche. Bao Shi Jie means swiftness to ensure a short time. Again, to the American ear and to the European ear, it does not sound much like Porsche. To the Chinese, though, it means that this is a very fast car. Land Rover, a little bit closer, Luhu, 
means tiger on the road. But then you get to the idea of the mixed ideas of, of names. And again, let's look at both cars and, and being both male and female, of, of both cars and also cosmetics. Lancome has Lancome, which means orchid for lawn, and either cardamom or red nails with balsam blossom. Either one, though, has a positive connotation with cardamom having a whole impression of young girl. Hummer is Hanma, means husky, valiant horse. So careful on the names. Work together with people who are fluent in the language and also are fluent in the writing of the language because that is where you can get into trouble and understand there are two different types of Chinese symbols. There are the traditional Chinese symbols which are still in use in Hong Kong and Taiwan predominantly. And then there's simplified Chinese which came through any number of edicts after the revolution. Next step is vigilance. Check for cyber squatters. That is, obviously, you want to go out and look, and this is exactly as we were discussing earlier, you're going to have to look for websites that are close to the website that you have. And you might want to consider hiring a third-party service to monitor the trademark and domain name registrations as they go forward in order to threaten them, push them out, etc. because you don't want to have those sorts of legal problems. And anybody who goes to the trouble of opening websites and going to try to register names that are similar to yours obviously has some money behind them. Time to go after them. This we'll get to in a minute. The other thing is Taobao. Anybody out there who's originally from mainland China knows Taobao and knows it well, I'm willing to bet. It's, think of it sort of as the equivalent to America's eBay on steroids. Uh, you want to be checking Taobao to see what other competing products are out there. If it's out there in China, it's on Taobao. Now this ties in very nicely, I think, with what both Gianna and John had said, which is that you need to educate your employees on the value of your brand. Again, just as they both had said, their Chinese employees had not appreciated inherently the value of the brand or been able to recognize it. Once they are taught about that, they become extremely vigilant about it. It bothers them, it upsets them. It bothers, it's actually, uh, for employees, it becomes a matter of honor. And so it is really a very good idea for any company that moves into China, that wants to sell its products in China, that it gets its employees to assist them in, in overseeing piracy of their, their label. Now let's get into the actual legal stuff, and I'll try to make this not too boring. First off, if you're going to be licensing your product to a third party in China, be it through a joint venture or a direct license, um, be careful of where you have the choice of law and where you have it that if there's a dispute, where that dispute is going to be heard if it's going to be heard by some sort of an arbiter or a judge. Uh, in general, I try to push for uh, to do this in a larger city, Hong Kong, if it's at all possible. Depends, you know, you, one of the real things you might get from this is to be careful not to license to third parties who don't have, have a reputation and some money behind them. Also, then you want to consider, in terms of the law, CTAC, which is the Chinese International Economic Trade and Arbitration Commission. 
and the Beijing Arbitration Commission as possibilities because they are a lot faster and a lot less clogged than the courts, where you have 17,000 cases before the courts or 9,000 cases in 2009. Trust me, there are not that many judges, let alone, and for that matter, there are not that many lawyers in China. So in arbitration, you're more likely to get things moving faster. But let's get to the enforcement side. First, I'm going to start with the reality check. This is kind of what happens with lawyers here in the United States, too. You come in and you say, something god-awful has happened to me. Somebody's done something and they've, they've done me wrong. Invariably, the lawyer's going to say, do you know where this person is or this company is that did you wrong? If the answer is no, then it's going to be, well, then how are we ever going to get a hold of them to try to get money out of them or get them into court or before an arbitrator or what have you? Then the next question tends to be, and do they have money? And if your answer is, chances are no, because they're a slippy, slippery piracy group who are going out there and taking empty bottles behind stores, filling them up with colored water and then resealing them, then you have a real cost-benefit analysis problem because the cost of going out and pursuing a lawsuit or an arbitration against these guys is going to be severe considering the likelihood of your ever actually getting anything out of them. But China does have actually something that we do not have here in the United States, which is what's called the administrative route, which is where an infringer is fined, criminally charged, and where their pirated goods are confiscated, but there are really none or very few damages given to the brand holder or the brand owner. In fact, really none. The balance is you get quick action. The problem is you don't get a lot of money out of it. On the other hand, you can go the judicial or the arbitration route. I generally suggest to clients they go the arbitration route because the court system can be fickle and, for that matter, expensive. So uh, one thing also, if anybody has their pen out right now, I want them to consider writing down a particular <coughs> website that is not on here through my own error or omission, which is www.chinaipr.gov.cn. It was put into existence about three months ago by MOFCOM, the Minister, Ministry of Commerce in China. It provides a summary of all cases that are currently going on in China in the area of intellectual property enforcement and rights. IPR stands for intellectual property rights. It's a brand new site. It is government sponsored. It is quite complete and it's in good English. So I'm happy to be able to give you that as a write down. So let's, let's just summarize. On brands and China, you've got to be thoughtful before you go there, but once you get there, first thing you want to do is register, no matter what. Uh, my firm and any number of other law firms can assist you. My firm is part of a network of about 95 law firms around the world. We work with the third largest law firm in, in China. I talk to them probably once a day or once an evening, to be honest. Um, and so uh, there are ways that you can do this and get it done quickly. By the way, the, the actual classification system of the trademarks is constantly being changed and constantly being narrowed in accordance with complaints under the WTO and the WIPO. So China is now starting to differentiate not just in food but also in clothes between t-shirts, between shoes, between socks, between underwear, et cetera, et cetera. It's not entirely, though. I mean, it's not perfect, trust me. <coughs> uh, 
One thought, though, is that piracy is an indication that your brand has some marketing penetration. So if you're a small or medium company, you're being pirated, guess what? That could be a very good thing. I think Gianna said that already, and this is just sort of backing her up on that. And then part of that analysis is exactly as she said. Are you losing or gaining, actually, business from any piracy that's happening? And the answer to that changes from instant to instant. If the pirates are likely to slip away into the night, into the back alleys in, in Guangzhou, if they're likely to, to end up in Renan province or something to that effect, then the administrative route may well be the best way to go. Just get the pirated goods off the streets and basically have it such that they, that they are collared by police officers. The Chinese police are not the nicest people in the world. So uh, they, they treat people who they don't like just as badly as, or with just as harsh treatment as any other police force you'll find anywhere. Know China and its markets. Talk to people like Gianna. Talk to other people who know about China and its markets. Talk to Chinese friends. Get to know what their spending patterns are like and what they want. As Gianna said, there is a middle class there that wants the real product. And they're paying a fortune for it. And not only that, they resent the fact that they're constantly having to search and search and search to find the real product. I've got stories I can tell. And just remember, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Thank you. Let me know if there's anything else I can do to assist you. Thank you, David. We've had a description of the problem. We've had examples, we've had the scope of the problem discussed, and we've had a plan of action, solution too. So I'm sure this generates a whole lot of questions in your mind. Is this something I can navigate or not? How do I deal with this? So the floor is open to questions. You can direct it at any particular panel member or just raise your question and we'll see who best will answer it. Ed? Go, go, uh, I heard the word opinion versus Mandarin, and I don't quite know what Opinion is David, do you want to deal with that? Opinion is Mandarin in anglicized or Roman alphabet. That is uh, Chinese or it, it doesn't, it, China can be Cantonese too, but it's Chinese in English letters. So that when you see Ni Hao written out as N-I-H-A-O, that's Pinyin. Otherwise, if you were to see it in symbols, it would be something that you would probably not be able to read. Uh, you know, the, the da would be shaped like this with a line through the top, but if you were to see it in pinion, it'd be da. I noticed in the last year, the street signs have gone from all Chinese to, to having pinion. Pinion. Right. So pinion's a recognized language in the court system? Well, actually, pinion is, it's interesting. Pinion is recognized in China. There's an official pinion, spelled P-I-N-Y-I-N. Uh, there's, a, there's literally an official pinyin. In Taiwan, there's the Yale system, and there are any number of other systems that have never been quite uh, normalized, if you will, as to what the official pinyin is, so things will read differently. As to Cantonese, that's completely on the air. But uh, it is essentially how Chinese is written in English letters. But in, Mandarin, in mainland China, it is, it is universal. And so, yes, that is in pinyin. When you see that you're going to Baolu, you know, or whatever, then that, that means you're going to Bao Road and so on. Bill, you had a question. Yeah, the, the, the Chinese companies are establishing their own brands. They're getting, you know, some of their companies doing quite well in establishing brands. 
Are they treated differently? Do they approach this differently? Um, they have another mechanism of handling this that, that Western companies uh, don't feel they want to do or conduct, or conduct themselves? Um, the, the concern for Chinese brands right now is constantly they're trying to find names that are not going to be descriptive that are in Western, you know, in English or in other languages that are going to also have pizzazz, sort of like a Yahoo or a Google. And that's why Lenovo originally had the name Legend, but they realized that there was no way that they were going to be able to get that trademarked. So they changed it to Lenovo. Um, but the Chinese brands, I mean, part of what's happened in China is and this is not to be pejorative, but the development there has been essentially a Taiwanese type, uh, type of business development. It's been without the huge companies that one would find in, say, Japan and Korea. You know, the Sonys, the Samsungs, the, the, the absolutely enormous conglomerates. Rather, they're small and medium-sized companies, or sometimes really large companies that are privately owned, like Foxconn. But uh, in terms of the trademark protection, what they're constantly doing is trying to find ways to have really unusual or different names that will not run into this problem being descriptive or, for that matter, already generic. And so they're, they're having these sorts of seminars on how to come up with a, a brand name in English that will pass muster both in you know, Australia and England and also in the United States and Canada. If, if I could just add to that question a little bit, um, uh, in, in addition to that, they expect to be copied. So you see a lot of changes from a branding perspective um, that you don't see with a lot of Western brands. So for example, they'll change the packaging, the coloring, and the designs you know, once a year to try and kind of thwart the copying that's going to go on with that. Or um, the, there's a, a large focus on you know, t uh, technological developments, not necessarily technological, but making the product different so it can't be copied you know, the same way from year to year, making the packaging different. So you see a lot of more dynamic changes, I guess, because they're more expecting the copying as compared to Western brands where, and frankly, a lot of the brand wisdom is to stay consistent to not change, don't change the way your packaging looks, the way that you know your, your name looks um, for brand recognition, and you see kind of a different approach to that with the, with the Chinese brands. Ron? Well, Gianna began addressing this question. The question is, what do the Chinese do when other Chinese companies <coughs> copy their brand? They, they tend to go to court. And you know, if it's they, they first do the research and the due diligence to find out whether it's a bona fide, you know, defendant that they have there that's got some assets, and then they go to court. A lot, a lot of cases are Chinese company versus Chinese company for for knocking off a Chinese product, uh, and it happens in every just about every sector. Um, a lot of interesting ones are happening right now in the area of both patents and copyrights with respect to software programs. Uh, but you know, until China really starts developing really powerful products, and some of this is intentional, they're, China's holding off on developing some certain products. For example, it's cars. Its cars are predominantly produced in joint ventures with Western car companies. So is China making cars? You bet. It's making millions, perhaps you know, hundreds of millions of cars. Every, every Taxi cab in Shanghai is a VW Santana. 
that's made in Shanghai by a joint venture of VW and, and China, and essentially is a Chinese car. But China's holding off on its own real brands until it comes up with an electric car or an alternative car so that it can really be own a whole other space. Now there's the challenge, and there's a challenge for America. Yes, ma'am. Um, you talked a lot about consumer behavior and consumer expectations buying consumer goods, but I wonder if one of the panelists would comment on um, corporate purchasing and whether there's a different uh, mindset in terms of businesses buying business-to-business -business products and services in terms of um, knockoffs. B2B knockoffs. I mean, you know, it's like Toyota saying that the brake pedal was counterfeit. That's why I'm having a problem. You know, how do you deal with a situation like that? I'd say that, that I, I represent businesses that are buying, for example, scooters in sort of the same sense as a Vespa type scooter in China. And these are effectively Vespa type scooters, but they don't look like a Vespa, they, they look like a scooter. And is finding a good market for these in parts of you know crowded cities in the northeast of the United States, and for that matter on the west coast. Um, one of the funny stories that goes with that, though, which shows the difference in the Chinese mindset between the Americans and the Chinese, came over the fuel lines. The fuel lines were disintegrating because there's ethanol in the petrol in the gas in the United States. So they made a phone call to Shanghai while I was there, literally you know a month ago. And the folks in Shanghai said, oh, we're, we're going to have to change the fuel lines. That's going to be very expensive. That's going to be very, very expensive. And I'm saying, yeah, well, you've got to do it because you know, the fuel lines are destroyed after a week. And they, said, and they said, well, it's going to be very expensive. I said, well, how much is it going to cost? And they told me, and it translated to about 21 cents <laughs> for, for you know, a, a scooter that retails for $1,800 or $1,700 in the United States. I was like, OK, I'm not authorized, but guess what? Do it, okay? Just do it. I'll pay for it out of my pocket if I have to. Just do it. They're like, oh, 17 cents, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, 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 uh, you know, 21 cents. It's fine, just do it. That, that's a difference in it, that they're, because they're at the bottom of the smiley curve. That, that much money to them means the difference between being non-profitable and profitable to, to people on the other ends of the smiley curve. You know what I'm talking about. That, that, that means nothing. I think, um, I haven't researched B2B, um, but just anecdotally, I think that um, uh, a lot of B2B consumers, you know, in other words, organizations that are purchasing from others, rely a lot on strong relationships, uh, which is often referred to as guanxi in China. And so it's, you won't buy a brand that you're not familiar with because you don't necessarily have the tools that you need to ascertain whether it's going to be counterfeit or real. So there's a, a quite a, a large dependence on that relationship and that trust that's been built up over a long period of time, which makes it harder for new people to break in. I think that there's an assumption that it's counterfeit, unless you've proven to me otherwise over time. I'm going to assume that this is counterfeit, and so thus you see a greater reluctance to want to try a new brand or develop a relationship with the new entrant and more of a reliance um, on that Guanxi network. I was wondering, you were talking a lot about the bigger cities and how they've been exposed to these markets. Would you say that the smaller cities have also, like, do they also have to deal with this, or is it mostly in, like, 
The smaller cities have to deal with it more. Really? <laughs> I'm glad you. I'm glad that you asked that question because yeah, we didn't really t touch upon that. Um, in the smaller cities, yeah, it's even more common. Um, the when uh, the last time I was in China, which was this past summer, um, Haagen Dazs is kind of a hot new brand. That's uh, in, in all of the big cities, but hasn't quite made it to the small cities yet. And in the small cities, fake Hagendas are opening up everywhere. So, in other words, you know, bright young entrepreneurs who heard about all the business that they're doing in the big cities are just starting something, throwing up the name Hagendas on there, and they'll make money hand over fist for three months until someone <laughs> figures out it's going on and and shuts it down. So, because the real brands are there to a lesser extent in the smaller <coughs> cities, you have an even larger proliferation. Of, uh, of the fake ones. The, the, the other thing is enforcement. You know, so the major companies are spending most of their time in Guangzhou, Shanghai, and Beijing. The last thing on their mind is going out in the, uh, the, in the provinces. And yeah, urban provinces. Cities. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing is just that uh, what is interesting because of the web um, <coughs> and, and things like Taobao. Uh, one finds that uh, really to, to, do, <clears throat> to, to do the vigilance that I was speaking about really requires either a hell of a lot of driving and railroading and busing or a lot of work on the web. And it tends to be mostly web-based. But for example, you know, one thing that I just learned from a client today was that China consumes more Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee than anywhere else in the world. And I sort of scratched my head, and, and then he, and, and he said to me, why is that? And I said, I can only have one answer for that, because they've all heard that it's the best coffee in the world, so that's why they buy it. And I said, but I'm willing to bet you that probably 80% of it is fake, because who the hell knows? When you see a bean, it's a bean. But they are the largest consumers in a tea-drinking society where coffee outside of Runan province has never really been uh, been you know consumed that it is the largest consumer of Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee. Go figure. <coughs> Perhaps there's an opportunity here. Hearing the panelists during their presentation, some of the examples given as to why people buy counterfeit products. They're looking for something that signals to them quality. They're signaling some reputation, but they want a lower price. So maybe there's an enormous opportunity here for low-priced products where you can establish quality with that. And just as we think of China as a manufacturing source of cheap manufacturing products, maybe there is a reverse lesson here for us to make products that are of good quality but which is affordable by the mass and to be able to sell it there and make the money. So who's going to start a new business? Maybe the lady at the bank who has a question. Of that, 
this is, this is really common. What, what tends to happen is you have a Hong Kong holding company that owns a subsidiary that is technically still a wholly foreign-owned entity in mainland China. And then you have the issue is, does the holding company di dictate the branding? And it might well have a separate subsidiary for Hong Kong. <coughs> Remember, you have a separate trademark in, in Hong Kong. It might have a separate brand. And this totally flies in the face of American attitudes about marketing. Because now you have two, brand, two competing brands that are essentially the same thing under different names. But you would have something that makes sense. And because Hong Kong really has retained its Cantonese, notwithstanding that the government has done everything it could to, to switch over to Mandarin. Does that make sense? But what happens is you have, for any number of Americans who enter into business in China, they tend to do it as, and, and this is not just Americans, I shouldn't say that, Westerners. They do it through a Hong Kong holding company that then owns a Woofie, a wholly foreign-owned entity, in China, in mainland. And it's what you do with that holding company in Hong Kong in order to, to maximize how that works both in Hong Kong and then ultimately for Taiwan. And don't even touch Singapore because they are just bizarre. <laughs> they, you know, they, they, have, they used to be traditional characters, now have gone to a modified, simplified character that, that's different from simplified or traditional. Yeah, I mean, the only other thing is that you have some of these issues also within China with, with Fujian. And because Fujian is, is so tied into its own language. I mean, there is obviously regional languages throughout China. But the Fujianese stick very tight to, their, to, to Fujianese language. And that too, even still, if you want to market, you want to make sure that you're not saying something that in Fujianese has a secondary meaning that you don't want. I'm going to sound like a typical marketer here, but I think the answer to that question lies with the consumers. So in other words, who is the market for this brand? And what language or what pronunciation are they going to respond to? Or what, and and that, should, that can dictate the answer to this question. So instead of being a power struggle between the Hong Kong team and the Shanghai team, you take a step back and say, OK, are the majority of our consumers going to be in Shanghai? Or are they going to be? pan-Chinese, thus we want it to be in standard Mandarin. I mean, you can kind of take a step back and, and relate it to the characteristics of the target market. Yeah, and the short answer is also that the government would say Mandarin is the official language of, of China. Hong Kong is part of China, notwithstanding the SAR status. And that would be the easy answer, but it doesn't necessarily work as a practical matter within Hong Kong. Yes, sir. Gian, I, I had a question on your research. I wondered whether there was any evidence that, that uh, knockoffs damaging the, the primary brand, was that at all affected by the, by the price point of the primary brand? In other words, I would, I would see how the Louis Vuitton could in fact benefit from knockoffs because it's still so much more expensive than everything else, but I could see how a liquor could be much more, much more likely harmed by knockoffs because of the substitution of, uh, possibilities. Is there any evidence of that? 
That's an excellent question, and uh, yes, I would agree with the characterization that, that you just gave, and I think I alluded to it a tiny bit when I talked about brand dilution um, at, at the end, but, um, but absolutely. So the, the, the narrower the gap is between the price point of the real one and the fake one, um, the more cannibalization that you're going to see, and also potential dilution. So in particular with product categories where the consumers don't have a high level of expertise. So if you think about coffee, can they really tell the difference between a Jamaican bean and another bean? Probably not. Can they tell the difference between what a fake tequila tastes like and a real tequila? They might not be at that level of expertise yet to necessarily be able to do so. So um, if they have something terrible, it will affect the demand for the real brand because they say, well, I don't even want the real one now because I don't like it. So, so yes, I'm glad you asked that question. My, what I presented today was kind of a simplification mm -hmm. of, of the data, but there were definitely you know, some, some evidence of potential negative consequences, um, which is why presumably there's 17,000 <laughs> court cases waiting to be heard um, in China. But I would definitely make that link between price point of the real and the counterfeit, as well as level of expertise between the real and the counterfeit. So, Last two questions. But go ahead, John. For that point from a, this is real world. Yeah. Chivas Regal went from 250,000 cases to 25,000 cases in five years. And so these cowboys that ship the goods in to knock you off, they price it to maximize their profit. So it, it killed mm. the brand. And the same thing could be said about cigarettes, soft drinks, and wine. And you mentioned <coughs> wine earlier. They were taking Bordeaux wines. Okay, and they did ship in a few cases, and then the containers would have, you know, grape juice, and they just copy the, you know, Chateau Petrus labels and slap them on, and the the taste was so putrid that they were pouring Seven Up in it Ooh. to get it down. I mean, it's so, Chateau Petrus. Yeah. <laughs> um, to what extent do you think the price? determines or plays a role in the perception of quality to the Chinese consumer? And how does that compare to what you've seen on the US market or any, any other relative market? Is it, is it more, is it less of a role? Price is even a more important signal with regards to quality um, in China than it is in other marketplaces, definitely in comparison to the West. Um, so if something is uh, cheap, it's assumed to be a counterfeit. Not I'm getting a good deal and I'm getting a bargain. Um, some research that I did about um, uh, ice cream, for example, you know how you can just buy a, an ice cream on the street from a street vendor? If, it, if that ice cream was less than two yuan, it was assumed it was a counterfeit and no one would buy it. So even if you were trying to position your brand as being the value brand compared to, say, Walls, which would be the premium brand in that particular product category, you couldn't go, low, go beneath a certain price point because it would just be assumed that it was going to be counterfeit you know, and terrible. So um, that's just one example, but uh, maybe John can speak to this a little bit. But I would say the relationship is definitely, it's even more of a strong signal. Gianna's 100% right. It's all about face, Mienza. You have to give face. So the most expensive product in that store or bar or restaurant, that means that you, you're showing the ultimate respect to your guest. So the, the more expensive, the better it is. And then channel segmentation is very important there. So if, if you're with family and friends, you know, you could have a less expensive 
beverage, but I mean, if you're going out business entertaining, it's all about the, the higher price, the better it is. <coughs> so much money to be made in, in greater China. Yeah. I mean, I was telling the story earlier, just uh, somebody cracking open a bottle of Hennessy XO cognac, and they, they'd been sitting on it for 10 years, so the cork was dry, and it was like trying to open this thing was almost impossible, and it, you know, the cork ended up shattering, and it was real, it was real, actually it was, uh, it was Martell, I'm sorry, Martell, XO cognac. And these people have absolutely no interest in drinking cognac or anything like that, and this is some of the most ex expensive cognac you'd ever find. Similarly, I, when I, I was just over in China last month, and on my birthday, somebody gave me uh, a bottle of, of Veuve Clicquot champagne. And uh, later on, I overheard that it, it cost somewhere around 1,400 quan for a bottle of non-vintage Veuve Clicquot champagne. Well, that's, uh, you know, at today's rate, that's 200 some odd dollars. Was it real? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was real. It was real. <laughs> I can I can attest to the fact that it was real, but that's two hundred some odd dollars, and that that's how much they're willing to pay. Last question, Nizam. Yeah, uh, question directed that to you. Let uh, us say, uh, as you mentioned, that China at the moment, because of the pressure from WTO <coughs> and so forth, it has, by all criteria, I guess, enough legal uh, structure system in place laws and everything else, mm -hmm. but implementation side of it, enforcement side of it, <coughs> which has two entities there, courts as well as law enforcement agencies. Right, the administrative agencies. Right. And you mentioned that the, uh, Starbucks got a fair deal, Shop fair on. deal maybe because of its size and maybe being a well-known company. Uh, does that happen more frequently, more than because that's one I guess concern when it comes to uh, influence of the big Western multinational corporations over in the system. And secondly, we have any, let's say, uh, evidence that the local Chinese indigenous brands, when they get into litigation, do they, in that case, courts behave differently? Well, in other words, there is a bias for the foreign corporation because usually we hear otherwise when it comes to litigation in the other developing countries that a multinational company may not get a fair deal. Hence, you look for outside interference such as the International Chamber of Commerce's World Bank and other places because you don't feel that you will be getting a fair deal in the local case. To, to answer that, I mean, first off, part of the question is um, whether you're dealing with, again, somebody who you're in a, say, a joint venture with, you have a contractual relationship with. In that case, one good thing I didn't bring up is that China courts will recognize you could use choice of law in Massachusetts. In fact, I'm working on a, on a matter right now between a, an Isle of Man company and a way high China company and we're using Massachusetts law and you can choose to do that. It doesn't hurt that one of the biggest investors in the Weihai company is a Massachusetts based you know, multinational company. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you can do that. 
But that's a different story, I think, from what you're bringing up there. Um, so let me, let me start, the, the, I'll go back in time first to the, to the first question. Uh, there is an exception to the first to file doctrine, which is something that is famous. And that's, that was the original translation that was used by the, the mainland Chinese <coughs> government. And uh, then, then it was sort of developed in, in other cases to mean a company that has become so well known that were it not for having a trademark registration, it would be generic. So that that was the belief then that ultimately Starbucks was famous and would have been generic had it not even gone through this trademark registration process and it had a bona fide trademark, albeit in English. Um, that, so yeah, I think there is a little bit of bias towards the larger companies because then you have the ability to say, well, I might not have been the first to file, but I was famous a long time before that. And if you can show something that is sort of a, you know, of course everybody knows who you are. You're famous, you're McDonald's, you're, you know, you're famous, everybody's heard of that. That's different than trying to say, I'm famous, I'm a medium-sized company from somewhere in, in Belgium that nobody's ever heard of. Um, or nobody in China's ever heard of. Also understand that the Chinese tend to have heard of American companies better than they've heard of a lot of European companies. And that there's a whole cultural and historical discussion about that that's outside of the realm of this. <coughs> but then you get to the, the second question, which is the forum where you want to be heard. Trust me, if there's going to be a suit between British company, Isle of Man company, and Weihai company, no matter what, we don't want this heard in Weihai. We want this heard in Beijing. You want to go to a major city whenever possible, and in the South, invariably, we try to push it to Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong, even though it's still, it's now part of China and an SAR, it still has what we would call a common law background of a history of cases that go back for hundreds of years, and you know where you stand. <coughs> or at least you can infer from that where you might stand and make an argument about it. In China, there's no case law to build from. There, there's nothing there to say. Well, just like the case back in, in you know, 1941, well, there is no law from 1941. There was no People's Republic of China in 1941. So you definitely want to do this, at, at, certainly in a, in a city, you want to try to do it. If you're, if you're dealing with someone in, for example, who's pirating your goods in Shanghai, that does not necessarily mean that there's a Shanghai is actually a good example because Shanghai is actively policing this area and I don't think they're going to extend any better treatment towards a pirating company in Shanghai than they would towards a multinational corporation from the West. On the other hand, if you're doing something in Wuhan, in Wuhan and uh, it's dealing with a local, local pirating company in Wuhan and you don't have a lot of tentacles and you're not a really well-known Western company, I would try to get that thing moved to Beijing, like that. Does that answer your question? Thank you. Well, it's my sad task to bring this fascinating discussion to a close, because <coughs> we've got to keep to time. And before we do that, let us first give our panelists a big hand for... for such a wonderful presentation and for spending this time with us. My next thanks is to all of you for coming here this evening and sharing this time with us. And
encouraging this event. So thanks to all of you also. My third thanks is, let's not forget Terry Malionic and her able crew, Anna Kadri, for putting this together. Thanks, Terry. Anna? Yes, I mentioned Anna too. Anna's there. Anna, please wave. And my final thanks is to Dean O'Neill for standing by these events and making international business a big focus of the Sawyer Business School. Thank you very much. Please stay on, continue to interact with our panelists, see some of the wonderful displays that are here, enjoy our hospitality, and thank you again for coming. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.